You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right, well, good morning. We are now session five. We're going to have uh, two more times together in this series. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll talk about spiritual warfare writ large, and then we're going to have kind of like a summary and Q&A session to wrap it all up. So if you've had burning weird questions for me uh, in the last month, you may either ask them today or save it, and we'll see what we get into at that point. Uh, today we are talking about paganism and the occult, uh, both of which might sound like big, scary words, but ultimately the reason why we have had so much preamble, and I'll get to that shortly, is that this is where we're now getting into the fact that this is the world in which we live today, right now. Our current context, culturally speaking, is not Christian. It is post-Christian. It is anti-Christian. And that while we may take these words for granted, this is the context in which the everyman lives. Whether you're in, you know, somewhere far flung or in the modern West that is now in great decay, this is what we're wrestling with. So I want to quickly catch up where we have come because all of, again, these points are preamble. Uh, What we studied together at this point is to help dislodge our default materialism. We have grown up with it. We have inherited it. It is not sufficient to understand the world in which we live. It simply is not. It flies in the face of the Bible and the biblical worldview in which we have also inherited. But we, we have lived in a materialist context that is not helpful. So we want to understand the supernatural worldview that Scripture historically presents to us and see how those pieces fit together. Now, again, some of this we only have so much to go on. We don't want to be dogmatic here, but we do want to see how this threads align through the Old and New Testaments and make sense of how we got where we are. So we have Genesis 1. God creates the sun, moon, and stars, the heavenly host prior to mankind. The ancients, our forebears, would understand this to mean that the physical universe is suffused with a spiritual presence. We talked about, for instance, this language specifically. The Jews and the early Christians saw the sun. They realized it burned in this, this vacuum of space. Yes, we can observe that. It also has a spiritual connotation. It is talked about in Job and elsewhere as the, the morning stars that had some sort of actual physicality and personality. They did the role that God assigned to them. It was a worshipful task. Genesis 3, we see that Eden was a liminal or in-between space where heaven and earth overlapped. That's what Ezekiel goes into detail to describe the holy mountain of the Lord, his throne room, his footstool. This is why God is casually walking around in Eden. The only reason we see Adam surprised and scared by that is because he has sinned in that narrative and is now afraid of God. Otherwise, they're just there together. The serpent, as we've talked about being a seraph or cherub, some sort of high angelic being, would not be a surprising conversation partner for Eve. Same reason. He just happens to be there too. They run into each other sometimes. Satan, envious of humanity becoming God's final image bearers, fell morally out of pride, taking innumerable angels with him in his rebellion. We then move to Genesis 6, as we covered. 
uh, in, in some ways or means, the defilement of earthly affairs by heavenly beings, accelerated sin on earth. We see you know, effectively an empire of evil that is built there so perverse that God hits the reset button at that point. He says, I have let the agency of man go, and it has fallen to hideous corruption. We're going to do it again with Noah. Genesis 11, we fast forward. This is where we talked about the fall of nations. Uh, Very important for our consideration, especially today, as at Babel, God disinherits the pagan nations who did not abide with his law and sets over them spiritual intermediaries, numbered according to the sons of God, as Deuteronomy 32 tells us. This is where we have the figureheads that ultimately fall themselves to corruption and, and garner for themselves the worship that is rightly the Lord's. We saw that angels are shown in Scripture according to three choirs or orders. Uh, Again, we don't have a lot to go on here, but enough to at least see that some are certainly directed in service to God. Some seem to have uh, dominion over creation, and others are messengers and servants to mankind specifically. They do different things in different roles. We saw two. There's a divine council aligned with Yahweh. That's his advisors, his staff team, as it were. We see it all throughout, especially the Old Testament. There's also implied an infernal council, the same orders of beings that have rebelled and work with Satan. That it is not just one big bad guy, nor is it a bunch of little faceless fallen angels. There are lots of different pieces to this puzzle. We saw also that the the Jewish understanding was the demonic forces are not properly angels, but lingering unclean spirits, or the shades, that's the Hebrew shadim, the the dead giants. It's weird, but it's there, so we have to reckon with it. Finally, and most importantly, to really cap this, is understanding that Satan is not equal to God. And like these pagan gods, disinherited by Yahweh, fallen angels, demons, what have you, He is infinitely subordinate to Yahweh as a created being. There is no duality or balance between good and evil. There is no yin-yang. That is something we'll talk about shortly because that has become a very popular concept. Everything always in balance. There is no greatness or superiority to our great God because he has to be balanced out by some force of darkness that is simply unscriptural. It's untrue. So, before we get into really what we're going to talk about today, I just want to go through that preamble again. Any questions here before we move on? All right, let's look at terms and definitions then as we go to today's specific subject matter. Generally speaking, pagan thought is not necessarily related to formal religion. There are many extant pagan religions, but paganism on a broad scale, is convictions focused on destroying distinctions, collapsing reality, looking at uh, how to kind of interact with nature for personal security, individual enlightenment, or cultural coercion. We'll get into that a little bit more here. The the most important framework that we can talk about is the idea, and I, I, I... neglected to remember who came up with these terms, but it's, I think it was in the 1980s maybe, uh, an idea of one-ism versus two-ism, which we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but these, these words are trying to get at kind of a, a metaphysical worldview understanding. So we would agree with a twoist understanding. Twoism emphasizes the two levels of nature. There is a creator 
and his creation. So we see a distinction between what we are down here with everything else and God who is other, he's outside. Now obviously we have the great blessing of this high and ontologically other God loving us personally and being imminent and coming to us and condescending to us. That is unique across world religion because God is the only true God and he loves his creation. However, he is not created himself. We contrast that uh, and see how, like, when we understand getting into Scripture, what we know, what we are, epistemology, ontology, these larger words, they, they show throughout Scripture that we justify our being and what we do, who we are, why anything matters, against this standard of God. He sits outside of time and space. This is why we can appeal to the idea of morality, because we actually know what's right, because God upholds that and embodies that. Otherwise, we spiral into relativism. Nothing matters if there is no standard by which anyone can be held accountable. And we see that blissfully, thankfully, in the person of God the Father, in his attributes, God the Son and his reconciliation with us, God the Spirit and his work in time. The flip side is this idea of one-ism. It emphasizes that everything is one. Distinctions are, in fact, unnatural. We spend any time thinking about this, we can see it everywhere. Here's what R.C. Sproul has to say. We've seen the noonday sun reveal the destruction of the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sex. It has become not only neo-pagan, but neo-barbarian. Ideas of consequences, the ideas of the new age, of our age, that all of creation is as divine as we would ascribe solely to the creator, have their roots in ancient Gnosticism. That particular philosophy embraced a form of pantheism or monism. God is the one, the sum of everything. All is God, and God is all. Of course, if everything is God, then nothing is God. The very word God can point to nothing individuated from anything else. It becomes meaningless, an unintelligible word. Now, Sproul packs a lot of punch into that statement, but he's talking about how ultimately monism or oneism, that, you know, kind of everything is divine together, it is a deliberate destruction of the distinction between creator and creature. And if we think about this, you know, nothing is neutral in the world. Atheism is just as satanic as paganism. It is a rebellion against God. It is a disregard of who he is and who we are and how it all fits together. So in this case, we're, we're talking about how the, the larger picture of paganism, whether it's Old Testament, Hebrew interaction with the ancient Near East, or modern practice today, either formally or informally, it is looking at how distinctions no longer have any meaning. There is no putting things in their correct place. We consider Genesis 1, God goes out of his way over and over again to talk about he created the plants according to their own kind. Animals according to their own kind. Fish according to their own kind. Eventually man and woman according to their own kind. Is it any surprise today that when we consider our cultural milieu, marriage no longer means what God said it means. Gender no longer means what God said it means. Pick anything. We no longer see, you know, everything is, is entirely 
adversarial towards distinction. Distinction is God's domain. It is plan for creation. And it should not surprise us that when we see any effort taken to erode Christian faith, true worship of Yahweh, the gospel, it is to undermine and erode distinctions. So that's what we're here. And I think Paul says it best and very succinctly in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Paul's assessment is this is everything that is not God's does this every time. You can deconstruct every world religion. You can deconstruct systems of magic. You can deconstruct all the things that are arrayed against the Lord. It's this, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Any questions? Dick. I was just thinking, um, going through this, Exactly what this is because it's, we're all we're all coming from the slime, and we're all really interconnected with one another. Yeah, it's, it's... yeah. Dick's point is, you know, you, you think about evolution. You know, that's the, the predominant theory of you know unifying everything today. At best, we are cosmic accidents. That's what we have going for us. Real, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror this morning. Talk about how you, too, crawled out of the primordial soup, and that's the best you've got. But it's true that evolution is obviously a godless understanding of the world. It is is mechanistic in a way that we just hope that randomly good outcomes work together so that no matter where we actually are, we have no intrinsic value. We have no worth. It's only what we can strive and build for ourselves. And as we see, you know, it, it, it may seem to some of you funny that we say, you know, I, I would claim today's culture in the West is highly pagan. That might strike you as odd. Maybe we're very secular or very humanistic. It's all the same. The irony is that in, in the desire to destroy distinctions, there is really not much distinction on their end of the spectrum. It's all the same. It's one other way of saying nothing really matters except for what you build for yourself. So, moving on, we have uh, this, this idea that all of these things, like I said, are the same. Paganism, occultism, magic, witchcraft, and Satanism are diverse, varied, and often not aligned in formal practice, method, or strict definition. Their exhaustive study here would be impractical. My point is, these are words that encompass so much stuff. Not every person who claims to be any one of these things or practitioners of any one of these things is probably doing the same stuff that somebody else is. And that speaks again to, you know, this is a a miniature, a microcosm idea of making the world in our image. We do it all differently. Praise God for our individuality, but that also shows the multiplicity of the ways we choose to express that in sin. The core concept for all of these, however, is, I think, in one aligned direction. Let's go back as we were a few weeks ago, Genesis 3. We often talk about the fall of man and understand, obviously, the gravity there, but there's, there's a way in which Satan speaks to Eve and Adam that I think gets at kind of the thesis statement of all of these concepts. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A through line in all of these ideas is that there's something that God has hidden from us. He's keeping it back. He's a miser. He's stingy. He doesn't want you to know the real secrets of the way the world works. So we see that secret knowledge, which is often called esoteric, or as Sproul previously said, Gnostic ideas, secret knowledge is at the heart of these rebellious practices. Rather than resting in the revelation of God, occult thought and its adjacents aim to master nature for itself. It's to climb up and take something that isn't given to us. Mary Alice, do you have a question? Mary Alice's question is, how did Adam and Eve have even the concepts of death and sin before they fell? And what we'll see, I'm actually going to bring this up shortly, so well done for the segue, Mary Alice, is that ultimately, you know, Adam and Eve, they're in a place of probation in, in Eden. It is not perfection. It is a paradise state, but it is not perfect. It's not fully realized. I think what we can understand is that Adam and Eve were aware of the task they had to be kind of prototypical prophets, priests, kings, just as Christ is. You know, as we talk about and as Paul belabors beautifully, there was a first Adam and then there was a last Adam. Christ has to look and fulfill what Adam could not. So I, I believe we would at least understand he, he knew the stakes of what was going on there. Now, maybe, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. We, we don't have a clear indication there, but I do think that the, that the way in which we would understand Scripture to interpret itself is that Adam and Eve knew what they were up to. They were given the full dominion over the created order as the vice regents of God in this beautiful paradisal state. They knew what they had to do, and then they blew it. So following with that, uh, the common thread among these convictions, systems, and practices is the resting control of the created order for willful, self-directed ends. Again, making the world in our image and using the gifts that we are given in an abusive way. And as we see all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, and throughout history, this is often used employing the help of rebellious spiritual beings. There is real power out there to interact with. And someone who is driving kind of the cosmic white van and inviting you into the back for some candy, as it were, is out to get you, but happy to help you get there. So, to Mary Alice's point, Adam and Eve were meant to pass probation by rejecting the literal low-hanging fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Rather than fail, they were meant to grow in wisdom and make right deliberations in due time. Uh, we see in Proverbs, Proverbs really is, is using Adam 
as an idea of, you know, there's the dame of folly and the lady of wisdom. Which one do you go out with? Adam was in a big hurry to grow up too quickly. And we see, ultimately, he is the court, or the courtier of the dame of folly. So Proverbs, we can look at in many ways, is talking about the distinction between these two things. And a great thing that that Solomon says in, in chapter 25, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As in, wisdom is hard work, and it requires actual deliberation. And it means you're discerning what is actually there. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it true? Is it false? Now, obviously, in God's ordering of things and his good plan, Adam and Eve transgressed in the garden and failed. So we, 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 it would only be idle speculation to consider what would happen if they didn't. But we can see the task they were given was to make this sort of adjudication. Ultimately, Adam was meant to say, no, that's a nice offer, but you're wrong, Satan. Actually, it's for good reason that despite giving everything except for this one tree, it's good for us not to eat of its fruit. That was trust and faith in Yahweh as opposed to trust and faith in themselves. We see this idea also when we go back to Babel. Remember, what was the motivation for the people to build this tower They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God comes down to the throne room in Eden. And when that goes south, people try and build that mountain themselves and go up and grab him. Take heaven by the reins fulfill themselves in a perverted rearrangement of how we're supposed to interact with the heavenly things. John 3, 30, 31, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. This is our rightly ordered arrangement John is talking about. This is how we should actually interact with the Lord not to uh, kind of plunder heaven for our own use. Any questions before we move on? Yes, Colin. So it seems that original sin is just a rejection of twoism. To say, like, I will, I will be with God. It'll be oneism for me. Thank you very much. Is that... That's good. So Colin's asking, is, is original sin just a, a rejection of twoism then? The idea of Adam and Eve had a front row seat. They had a better more accountability than any of us to see how the world really works, right? God is walking with them in the garden. They were not exactly without excuse there. So Colin is asking, is original sin just a rejection of that paradigm? And I think that's a great way to put it. Yes. It's, instead, it's going to oneism. Actually, I'm going to figure out what's right. God, thanks for the tree. I'm going to make these decisions myself. Uh, it is a... a I mean, to put it very lightly, a thumbing the nose at the way the world is supposed to work. Um, very good. Yeah, I think so. Anybody else before we move on? All right. So we want to talk about, uh, again, our paradigm today, the world in which we live, the ideas of disenchantment and reenchantment. This, this comes out of, I, I think it was... Uh, Max Weber, who's a German philosopher and economist, who was talking about how he wrote the book um, 
Puritan work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Uh, a great book, not an, an invigorating read, though. Weber was not a great author, but you know he had some good things to think about. He was talking originally about how one of the reasons in his assessment that we have, you know, kind of the, the catapulting of capitalism and, you know, kind of market economy ideas is because so many people in the modern West were Protestants and they had a great work ethic. They, they understood who they were and how to get stuff done because they wanted to honor God with the means they were given. He's not wrong, I don't think, but he was talking in part about how there was a certain death of magic in the end of the medieval and renaissance eras. And I would argue he's not quite correct there, but his point was to say, we no longer have a worldview that entertains things that aren't tangible, that aren't brass tacks, pragmatism. You get stuff done because you put in some hard work and you make some money. That was his thesis. We don't have time for angels and fairies. We don't have time for high church liturgy. We've got you know, the, the preaching of the word in a bare bones auditorium. That's Protestantism and that's what we do. Again, I disagree with him on that, but I think the point he was getting at was the idea of disenchantment. He uses a word that I will not pronounce in German because I do not know how. It's very long. It's like 26 letters long. Leave it to the Germans. Um, but it translates to the, uh, the disenchantment of the world. The idea is kind of the, the fire of imagination has gone out because we just don't need it anymore. And when we look around, we think of kind of increasing secularization in the modern West. That's what that looks like. We just don't have the categories for it. That's part of the reason we're doing this series is because the church has lost that in a great way too. We have a very truncated understanding of the enchanted world that we do live in. So Ecclesiastes 3.11 uh, is, is excellent here. I think of this often. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart. We can't escape being worshipful, eternal beings. It's baked into who we are. God put it there. He enforces it no matter whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. We yearn to worship something. We yearn to find meaning and purpose outside of ourselves. We yearn for something that answers our questions. It's part of the human condition. Peter Jones, who I believe is uh, out at Westminster and... Escondido, he might, I don't know if he's dead, hopefully he's not, but I think he's, he, he, was, he, he was aged when he made this comment, we, I don't know. Christians in the West used to be able to assume that their friends and neighbors knew the basics about the Christian faith. This is no longer the case. Losing interest in Christianity has not, however, made people secular, as one might have expected. People these days gladly consider themselves to be spiritual as long as they have faith of any kind. The object of that faith doesn't matter. In fact, anyone who tries to insist that faith must be placed in a particular God rather than the crowd of gods worshipped in the culture is breaking our society's first commandment, thou shalt not impose thy religion on me." I think it's a great point made. We, we do assume, I, I'm sure grew up hearing that we live in a very secular age. We don't need God anymore. But then I look around and I realize everybody's got some sort of weird spiritist faith conviction. Why are there so many psychic shops all over the place? Why are 
all of our teenage daughters obsessed with astrology and crystals and nonsense. Well, it seems dumb and silly and out of order to me, but I realize, is it not the expectation that really, if your heart is wandering, it's going to find something else to fill the void that is actually a God-shaped hole, right? Yahweh is the only true object of worship. Everyone else is a pretender. But we live now in a society where because of pluralism, because of disenchantment taking its toll, we just have to kind of pick up the pieces as we find them and hope for the best. Derek Wilson, he's a historian and wrote a great book on magic. Uh, Mary Alice, pardon me, go ahead. So Mary Alice's great point there is that, you know, Dr. Jones, his language there is the impose thy religion. Uh, we, we often still feel that way sometimes in Christian expression of saying, duh, obviously this is the right answer. I'm going to hit you in the head of the Bible until it sticks. That's not good evangelism. And I, I applaud Pastor Wright going reasonably through a, a much more biblical understanding of evangelism, why we actually share the gospel the way we do, and how we trust that it is the Holy Spirit that converts people. It's the Spirit working with the Word of God to convince and convert the hearts of sinful men. It is not up to us. It is not up to Mary Alice or I to compare numbers for the last month and how many you know, souls we converted. It doesn't work that way. And, and by God's grace, that is wonderful, because ultimately, if it was up to us to save the world we would probably convert zero people, right, if it was solely up to us. And we'd be very proud and rest on our laurels if we achieved that. So, great point. Thank you, Mary Alice. Uh, so, Derek Wilson, he's a historian, and he wrote uh, a book, I think it's The, the, the Art of Magic or the, the something, something along those lines. He, he's talking about how, similar to uh, what we previously talked about, kind of this paradigm shift coming out of the last major era of human development in the West, kind of into the modernism that we've inherited, he had this to say. In the 15th and 16th centuries, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and ubiquitous multifaceted paganism had one thing in common. They all agreed that life had meaning. Throughout time, there was no hard distinction between science and superstition because it was understood that all knowledge came from God, whether divined from scripture, astronomy, or the occult. Obviously, there's corruption there, but that is a good point. It was not until the Enlightenment finally killed God that these convictions went underground, safe from the cold nihilism which stripped meaning from everything as man's mechanistic reason was elevated to insane heights in the public square. Also some spicy language from Dr. Wilson. Uh, but that gets to a great point. I underlined the, the Enlightenment finally killed God. That's in reference to Friedrich Nietzsche, his infamous statement, God is dead. 
which is almost always taken out of context and not appreciated for what it is because Nietzsche, who is perhaps one of the most honest nihilists I have ever read, uh, appreciates very well that we can't run around without a god and still act like we enjoy all the trappings that come with an orderly moral society. As in, he was condemning the people of his time, the 1800s, to say, God is dead, we don't need anyone to hold our hands anymore, but also we're still expecting people to be courteous and kind and self-sacrificing. We are asking, it's, it's what uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis says in The Abolition of Man, we remove the organ and demand its function. Cut the heart out of a man and still expect him to act like he has one. So something that, that Nietzsche is getting here is, I think, really poignant with understanding where we are today, right? We, we live now in a very disordered cultural moment because we are expecting things to work in a way that is divine, but we hate the God who is. So we, we come also to the meaning crisis of the 20th century. This is, you know, since probably post-war, in our experience as Americans, and, and most elsewhere in the West, it, it, there was a meaning crisis, the sort of thing of like, you know, we're just going to keep our chin up, nothing matters anymore. We, we've had two paradigm-shattering world conflicts. We don't have faith in humanity. We don't have faith in anything. Who cares? Do your best. Be a good person. You know, don't be a jerk. Move on. What was the, uh, the old, the same like WWJD era bracelets where it was like, be nice, work hard, and that was the only statement. It's like, that's what just sums up our experience. Be nice, work hard. That was the ethos coming out of post-war era and something that we've really stewed in for a while, but that doesn't fit anymore. Nothing matters is no longer compelling for generations of people who yearn for worship, but are disordered and uninformed. As in, I don't think anybody really buys what's being sold in that regard anymore. We're going to find something to occupy our attention and our worship. Any thoughts before we move on? Rob? Great question. Rob says, you know, if, if we understand that Satan is bound in an eschatological sense, he is no longer able to deceive the nations, will we still chalk it up to his influence for people like Friedrich Nietzsche who are writing, you know, extremely polemical works that are undercutting the moral virtue of godliness in the world? And I would say, yeah, he can't deceive nations anymore. You know, that, that whole pagan infrastructure was stripped away by Christ's ascension. But that doesn't mean that he has gone to sleep or is already toast. He is bound. It's an already not yet. Um, talked about earlier uh, Frederick Lee's book, Satan Cast Out, right? He has the illustration of we have seen the lightning bolt of eternal judgment against Satan. We're still waiting to hear the thunder roll in. It's already not yet. So 
is Satan at work? Absolutely. And he has many, many folks on his side who are happy. And that's why I made the point, Rob, too, it's worth reiterating that nothing is neutral in the world. There is no moral neutrality. There is no just polite dissatisfaction with a created order. It is either the rightly ordered worship of the triune God or Satanism. Satanism is is just a big bucket for everything else. If you're a, a nice, tidy atheist, satanic. If you are a pagan witch, satanic. If you are a disenchanted youngster who wants to change their gender by surgery, satanic. It's all the same. Follow up? Yes, this would be a, 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 a tricky conversation with Jehovah's Witness, is what uh, Rob said, and that's fair. But also, same bucket, right? If we're if we're aiming for God and missing the target, whether by our action or our delusion, we are in the same place. Erica. So, in light of every being, every person, every human being, a worshipful being, mm-hmm. we can never attach the term secular really to a person, correct? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Erica's saying, can we really actually use the word secular to describe anyone if, if we're trying to think about this paradigm of we're being worshipful beings no matter what? I think secular is still a useful term because it is addressing the fact of just trying to kind of remove the divine from the conversation. So I, I think, for instance, uh, as, as a historian and a teacher of history, I think of like the, the great progress for the ancient Greeks. They wanted to produce a secular history That didn't mean they did not agree that there were gods, but they were saying, can we stop just saying Zeus is angry and that's why it's thundering? Like, let's figure out what thunder actually is. Secular history, secular science, secular medicine is just looking at the world as a created place. But we tend to overemphasize that word and use it to explain things it doesn't accurately depict, which I would agree, the implication of your question is there really aren't secular people anywhere. That is, that is an oxymoron. We are made to worship. We do worship, whether we think we are or not. We will never not have an object of worship. It's who we are. So that's, again, when talking about occultism with secret knowledge and enlightenment and personal journeys to truth or paganism, which is kind of the, the deification of nature and just being one with everything, these are all misaligned attempts at true worship because our hearts are darkened, and without the gospel preached and applied by the Spirit, so we go. That's it. All right. So, quick tour, the infernal arts in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, this is a survey of just some, there's way more in Scripture that we could talk about here, but there's some references to consider. Isaiah 47, 13, you are wearied, with your many counsels, let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze the stars, who at the new moon make known what shall come upon you. This is Isaiah's indictment of the astrologers of old, uh, and Israel was very infatuated with this stuff. When they lose sight of Yahweh, again, they're going to find something else to fill that void. Jeremiah 10 2, learn not the way of the nations. Remember, the nations were associating always with this paganism, uh, very, very formal paganism, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them. They're getting really bent out of shape because the Pleiades are one degree off. Must mean that their God is going to smite them. 
Don't act like that and fret over the motions of the stars. Leviticus 19.31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. Mediums, of course, being, you know, psychics or diviners. Necromancers is divination with the dead. Like we, I think we'll get to this shortly, you know, of uh, the Witch of Endor calling up Samuel for Saul because he was so outside the pale with the true God that he was not given any prophetic wisdom. He was not given any actual signs from the Lord. So he had to go out and what did he do? Do it himself. Find somebody else who's willing to wrestle with stuff they should not tango with. Deuteronomy 18, 10 and 11, there shall be not found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And I want to point out, you know, God gives these warnings to Israel don't do this stuff, not because it doesn't work, but because it does. I don't tell my kid, don't stick a screwdriver in the electric socket because nothing will happen if you do. I say, please don't do that. You will get shocked. Yahweh is making it abundantly clear, hey, yeah, you can look anywhere you want outside of Israel and see these abominable practices going on. They work. There is stuff in line working with people who are fallen, and they get results, but they're not the results that I told you to get. You're not revering me. You're not understanding that I have revealed to you all that you need, and you don't need to look elsewhere for information or power or insight, what have you. But he's saying, don't do it, because I know you see it working. Don't do it. It is damnable. Acts 16, 16 and 17. You know, Pastor Wright preached through Acts recently, and he spent a lot of time on this passage. It was great. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were set or met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The great irony there is the divining spirit rightly divines that these men are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ <laughs> and kind of outs herself there like whoops uh, shouldn't have said that one out loud and they you know cast out this spirit who very much was actually making a ton of money for these people who were using this possessed girl to tell fortunes and actually speak the truth of reality about people's lives that they shouldn't know Again, they wouldn't have been uh, having a good bottom line in their scheme if this spirit was not actually accurate. But, as we are seeing, we should not indulge that sort of thing. Uh, a few more here, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. As we said, spiritual warfare in a nutshell is deception and delusion to prevent you from understanding the gospel and worshiping God. The God of this world, Satan, as being spoken of by Paul here, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's no wonder they can't find salvation. They're being actively thwarted from hearing the gospel. Now, the nice thing, as we said, and to Rob's point earlier, Satan is bound now. He can't do this wholesale for the whole world. Individuals, absolutely. There's certainly satanic temptation we wrestle with that deludes us. But if the gospel goes forth, it can't be stopped. 
People might not believe it, but they can't reject it as though it never showed up. And that is a blessing. We are out of time. Uh, so any last questions uh, before we move on? Yes, Mary Alice. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Mary Alice's point is we, we still realize we, we are on the hook for, we're, we're accountable for giving in to deception and disbelief. Whether we're already saved and we're deluded or we are outside the faith and are being barred from true worship, we do assent to temptation and sin. We are not just being dragged along because Satan happens to be more powerful than we are. That is true. We're lower on the pecking order, but we still have to consent and indulge sin. It's not an accident that just, whoops, it happened to me. Or as Mary Alice said, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do anything, but you certainly bought into what he was selling. And that's a conviction for all of us because we still face that. We are still molested routinely by evil, even if we are safe with the indwelling Holy Spirit from being totally taken for a ride. All right, with that, let's pray uh, and we'll go to worship. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for the time together that we can talk about Scripture and see what's at stake when we walk outside and the people we talk to and the ways in which they view the world that are flawed and desperately in need of redemption. May we preach the gospel with boldness, knowing and trusting that it is your Holy Spirit that convinces and converts sinners, not simply our presentation or our panache. May we worship you now well and with rich joy and go into your house with thanksgiving and praise in our hearts. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.